Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Vietnam seems to be on everybody's tourist list. But 40 years ago, it was the place to get away from. Lucky Ticket is a book of short stories by Joey Boer. Welcome, Joey. Welcome to Australia. (laughs) Thank you. So great to be here. Well, Joey, how did you get these stories? um, It has been a long journey. It's a lot based on where I've lived, where I've traveled. I did a lot of interviews with Vietnamese refugees around the world and migrants from other countries as well, like from um, Africa into Abu Dhabi and from other wars around the world. Well, these stories aren't your usual storytellers, so you've really put yourself into interesting places to get them. So who's telling the story in Lucky Ticket? Right. um, I think it's interesting you chose that one to ask because it's the one story that is most based on a person that I met doing these interviews. Mm. The other stories are a blend or just inspirations from snippets of different conversations, but Lucky Ticket is the most faithful to this one veteran that I met in Saigon who was homeless and who was disabled from the war. He had also lost his legs and was um, moving around in a wheelchair. And that just... I, I just liked his him so much as a character because he had gone through so much suffering, but he was really positive. He had a great attitude, and I think that comes through in the story, and that was something I really wanted to capture. Actually, in a lot of those stories, mm-hmm. what came through was pro-American, very much anti-communist. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, yes. That's what I sort of read through that. Uh-huh. And, and it was interesting because he talked about losing his legs yeah. and um, how the bombs were especially planned or designed to stop the soldiers because the, the soldiers still had to be hospitalised, they had to be fed, but they couldn't fight. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there were the other stories about sort of around Saigon too with the bombing and the fleeing and dead parents or um, the men of the family running to hide and the deaths in tunnels from thirst and just oh golly there was a lot of these things <laughs> lucky ticket he he has nothing until the son of somebody he was in the army with mm-hmm. gave him a bag of money right and it didn't really bring him happiness did it no yeah uh, a huge theme for me was fortune and what that means and how different people understand it um, so you can see that he he assumes that that was what it meant his fortune coming, uh, but that meant that he was he missed or he was blind to something else that was better that really could have brought him happiness. So then we jump to the next story, and it's mm. called Hey Brother, and we have um, a Vietnamese refugee who went to Paris and he's got a really nice flat in Paris, and he comes back to the, uh, the his aunt's old village in mm. Vietnam. He's got money. He's he's got a wife. He 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 can afford to wear polo shirts with crocodile logos, <laughs> Lacoste. <laughs> yes. But he's not happy either. Right. Yeah. Um, that one, I think that is such a typical character. That is an archetype, I think, of 
um, Vietnamese refugees that have settled in Western countries. It's not based on any one particular person. It's based on the you know, like dozens of drunk men that <laughs> yeah. I've listened, drone on growing up. Um, there's, a, there's a quoting from the book. This is the fate of the immigrant, always the dumb hope we are going somewhere. And, you know, really where. So the, um, the honourable man is, you know, he's... Oh, there's another quote. The honourable man's greatest duty is to his family. And this, you have the refugee living in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And he feels the responsibility of having a son, but the inability to be able to voice this to his wife and son, who says, I don't owe you anything. So, you know, all that respect that is endeared into the Vietnamese culture of respect the elders Mm -hmm. is gone. Right. Yeah, I I think that story captured a lot the what what breaks between generations especially when there is this war and this trauma in in the background um and also a difficulty to communicate and translate um when the the son's main language would be English and the father's would be Vietnamese mm. and but you still have to talk. So from a father son Uh, lack of dialogue, Mm -hmm. we go to two stories that have the same characters in them. Daughter Lin, Lin and Mother Nga. Um, These stories are set back in Vietnam and we know that the father of Lin left on a boat, never to be heard of again. And I just want to hear you say it. It was the girl's silence. And, and this, this was horrible because she was not a particularly smart girl. She wasn't a good-looking girl. And to quote, What does a girl say when she first learns to be disgusted by herself? <laughs> oh, that's hard. That is so hard. And yeah. in the other story about these two, it was the mother's silence. The mm. narrator here said, look, the, the, you end one of the stories on page 121 mm. and you, you started seeing her on the side of the road and then you wrote these stories. Now just finish it off with that par- paragraph. This is where I depart. It has been exhausting and I am thoroughly disgusted with everyone involved, including myself. I will leave the girl alone. I think about what could have happened if only I had left her as I first saw her. A silhouette of a skinny girl waiting by the highway. A name and a hair elastic. So you've created these characters. You've let us read these characters and then you're apologising for giving us angst. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Look, in contrast to the hard facts of life, it it comes into the cultural world. Which is weird. You've given us a matchmaking ceremony in Mekong Love. Comma mm-hmm. uh, is promised to slip, but what does she find? You know, and she's she's all happy about this promising to be married, but there's this voodoo doll, nasty note, mm-hmm. blood, chicken heads. Yep. All with these, uh, and she can't even read the message. Right. So, what is the what is the, the death threats? Yeah. Yeah. They're all about don't marry him. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's the night of the first night of the, the the marriage, and she's waiting for him to make advances. Does he? No. Not. And no. The next night. No. So, 
in a weird, wonderful way, how does she actually get him to notice her? Um, I, I liked this moment in the book where I said that she finally started to fight for him and she wondered if the spirits of the Mekong heard her do it, um, where she asked to go quail hunting with him because he uh, hunts for quail uh, during the night and he's out all night um, and she follows him on, on that journey. It it was a lovely story, but I have to ask about the names in this. Uh-huh. Now, she's she's from a family, and her name is Comma. And what are her sister's names? Apostrophe. <laughs> and Dash. And Dash. <laughs> and she's got Uncle Cup and Table. Yeah. Aunt Pillar and Leg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even her uh, husband, Slip. What's his parent called? Fall. <laughs> <laughs> Did it? <laughs> I just, oh dear. Because, you know, I, I think it was because of the genuine, genuine happiness in this story. We got yeah. it about halfway through the book and I think we needed some happiness. <laughs> That's what I've been hearing a lot. <laughs> um, so you have to work out where these death threats are coming from. But not all the stories are in Vietnam. Vietnam. Who's the storyteller in Abu Dhabi Gently? He is a migrant worker uh, from Zanzibar that moves to Abu Dhabi to work. Yeah, so from Zanzibar. So he's he's kind of lost, isn't he, both in the country and right. in his in his religion. Right. Yeah. Um, Zanzibaris tend to be Muslim. It's a Muslim country, but uh, he doesn't personally practice it that much himself. And Abu Dhabi is a very heavily Muslim country. Mm. He kind and of discovers it there. In Dinosaurs, we jump to Buenos Aires. And just like dinosaurs, friends can disappear. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And before the lights go out, where's that set? In Kathmandu in Nepal about a self-centered uni student. Now, his his girlfriend, you know you're never going to do better than this. And his comment back, I thought of the different things I could do. Hit her, drive away, leave her there, or tell her she didn't know what she was talking about. They're pretty nasty (laughs) words. And this is where a lot of the women are treated pretty badly through this story. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I do have a lot of male narrators, and they are all pretty flawed. We're going back to the narrator in uh, the very first story, um, Lucky Ticket, and sort of something he says. My theory is we all get our turn in the end. Look at how young you are and the way you got to grow up. Look how pretty you are. I wonder how much you will pay for that. Now, he was talking about you in that because he was giving you your story. But you have linked it to another story, Black Beans and Wine, and it's not Vietnamese. Right. It's about a Pakistani-American girl. Who's got a really good job. She's a senator's star- staff assistant in Washington. And, you know, really, if you assume, if you get that amount of success... The assumption is that you've got a shared background, but hers was not. Right. Yeah. She um, she also comes from sort of a poor immigrant background and in that D.C. 
political world, people are usually from really privileged elite backgrounds. Yeah. And here she is. She's making wine in the in a bucket in a flat. Mm-hmm. Mm. So back to Melbourne and the Vietnamese community in a scholar's hands. It's it's here that I this Vietnamese refugee is 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 at uni. He knows he has to succeed, but he also sort of sees how confronting it is that he isn't white. Right. And the book that he's reading, that he's read five times, no, how many times? Nine times. Something like that. To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Of course, we have that disparity. You know, that's so much about prejudice and that's what he's feeling. Mm -hmm. So one of the other uh, short stories, Whitewashed, and this is the first time we're actually doing the second generation rather than stories from the first generation people the um, displaced people and here we have a cultural and sexual identity mixed up and confronting confronting racism on a train oh that was horrible but I'm going to get you to read from page 196 Mm -hmm. about something I thought was even worse this is at uni this is um, a, a friend or is she That night, as I lay in bed, Michaela on a mattress on the floor beside me, she started speaking into the dark. I think I'd like growing up poor, she said. What could I respond? Why would you? Or why are you bringing that that up in my house? I stayed silent. You could really get to know the basics of life, said Michaela. Basic happiness. What does that mean? I asked. It's like when you don't have money and you don't have the trappings of wealth, the superficiality, the materialism, you're really free. I find that poor people have so much more love and loyalty. Oh. <laughs> oh. Well, Jerry Boone, um, your book, Lucky Ticket, is a short story collection from a range of storytellers connected by being displaced in a different country or their own with insightful writing. Oh, you, you did a good job. You got all, you handled all of those Thank voices you. from angst to oh, cultural sens- sensitivity. So, Thank you so much. what are you going to do next? <laughs> uh, on Saturday, I'm going to fly back to the US. I'll continue my studies and I will also start working on a novel. Uh-huh. Is it going to have a Vietnamese centering? My current idea is no, something else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I've been speaking with Joey Boy about her book, Lucky Ticket, published by Text. Thank you, Jen. Well, I've got something rather different. It, we're not known necessarily here, published or not, for looking at books for the younger reader, children's books, in fact. But I have one here today entitled The Magic Glasses, which is both fascinating for its content and for the way it evolved. And I have one of the authors with me to talk about it. Sir Marcus Fastralan, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. It's uh, very good to be here. As I said, one of the authors, but there are yes. three of you. Yep, and the others will definitely be listening right now, so it's auspicious for all of us. But hang on a minute. None of you necessarily come from a background of authorship and the like. You're a veterinary that's so right. Bit, yep. Yep. So I'm a veterinary surgeon. Um, Shannon, one of the co-authors, is an accountant. 
Um, and John, one of the other co-authors, is a mathematician. What made you think <laughs> you could write books for children? A, a collaboration? What's going on? Well, we're all consumers of literary material, so you know, it didn't seem that hard, and um, we've produced it, something that we're pretty proud of. But it would seem to be quite a leap to go from, in your case, a scientific discipline background, and authorship is sort of known as being a little more abstract. Yeah, it is a little more abstract, but, um, you know, we get together and we talk about things and we get lofty ideas and uh, things fall into place. So, so the, that's what the, we ended up with. the collaboration exactly. works and yep. it's not yep. one person forcing a line. You manage to work well together. Yeah, it's a very balanced procedure and um, no, no one of us would have produced something like this on our own. Well, let's look at what you've produced then. I mean, the story is basically one about Thomas. He's a little embarrassed about wearing glasses, but there's a magic solution. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Identifying with the mindset of children at that age is actually incredibly difficult. How were you able to put yourselves in the place of someone like Thomas? We made a lot of assumptions in that we were all once children ourselves. Um, and cast our, or cast could, our could minds back. Could one say you still behave childishly? Oh, one could definitely yeah. say that. Um, so we just cast our minds back to what we would have liked to, stories we would have liked to read about. But that's a lot more difficult than you're actually sort of seeming to suggest because to be able to think, as an adult, we think, well, a, ch- a child must think like this. But to be a child and see it from that child's perspective is actually a lot harder. Yeah, we, we didn't really find it hard, though, so... So we how, feel like we've nailed it. <laughs> how did you decide on the story? Uh, it, it, there was a lot of iterations. You know, we sat around talking late into the evening because we all have full-time jobs. So mm. we just get together and um, talk about our ideas. We form a very skeleton sort of a plot um, and put together a bit of a story. And then the, the hardest part was the linguistic construction, which we're, we're actually really proud of. Well, we will get into that now the the linguistic construction the language you yep. have chosen language is key is key yes. but it's not conventional and there is a sort of metric in the publishing world about how many big words one can use in in a book for children at certain age groups so that it becomes marketable but here's the thing i'm just going to read one little verse and they story is written in verse, yes, that's right. Uh, to give the listeners an idea of what we're talking about. Go for it. Who goes there? Thomas asked, his vision obfuscated. After falling in the puddle, he was discombobulated. It's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> well, it it trips off the tongue for one thing, but discombobulated. Yep. Had, the, the the key thing with this is, is reading to young listeners, they're, they're hearing words that are novel that they've never heard before. So they're getting that novelty factor. They're really intrigued by what they're hearing. And um, we've spared no expense in the illustrations as well. I don't know if you noticed, but the, the images tell the story on its own. So you can turn each page and the children know exactly what you're talking about. But the sound of the words tell Correct. a story. The yep. rhyme tells a story. It all yep. works together. Yep. But this is actually... An educational concept. People have gone to university and got degrees in education uh, about learning language in context, but that's not your background. It's not our background. We've we formed our own hypothesis based on nothing that children speak in monosyllabic words because that's what we teach them. Um, and so we thought, why don't we read to them 
polysyllabic words that are more complicated that they've never heard before, throw some definitions in a glossary in the back well, you, and, you, you, and let yes, them run with it. You have provided a glossary, yep. but also the way you're using language. I mean, there's a word in there, uh, which is not a word, de- <laughs> <laughs> depuddled. So uh, Thomas has landed in a, a puddle, his mm-hmm. glasses are mucked up, but you've used the word his, his glasses are depuddled uh, when he wipes yes. them clean. Yes. But you've invented words Correct. In, in that regard. And it makes it easier to rhyme if you invent oh, well, words as well. Well, de- <laughs> depuddled and befuddled go together. Exactly right. Yep. But it's, it's that notion that one can play with language and build words. Well, language is supposed to be fun. You know, there's a lot of words in the English language that we're losing. Um, oh, yes. and, and if you notice from the book, there, there are some words that, you know, you might, you might have had to look up yourself because you've not heard them for a very long time. Um, well, you have used antiquated yes. language. There's here to for. Yep. And basically, we've got uh, here to for. It, yep. it becomes one word. And mm-hmm. we've got all sorts of things, words like that in the English language. That's right. But yep. we don't often use them anymore. I know, and it's sad. It's sad. We're we're just trying to bring them back one word at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, words disappear from the language all the time. I kept giving my students the notion of of ruthless, and everyone knows the word ruthless. But can you be Ruth? (laughs) One can try. (laughs) Yes, but Ruth is actually a word. It does exist, but we just don't use it anymore. So, yes, playing on that notion of bringing back vocabulary because it disappears and, and appears and yep. emerges and changes yep. all the time. Yep. That's um, right. Idioms. I mean, in this story, we have the phrase on the horns of a dilemma. Yes. Yep. Now, it's a sophisticated sort of notion. Yep. So would a child at the age that this book is set be able to come to grips with that sort of concept or not, do you think? Based on the picture that's there, they would definitely be able to work out what's happening. But it's about an interaction between the child and the parent um, reading the story to them. It creates that engaging atmosphere mm. and it, it makes it more educational, more fun. It's fun for the parents as well, rather than reading a boring monosyllabic book to their kids that, is, that doesn't engage with the parents. Mm. Um, so that's that, that was our viewpoint. So three people whose background is not necessarily authorship or education, get together. Yes, yes. I mean, this process in terms of, I mean, what made you take that next step into publication? I suppose having, if it was just one person, it would have been very easy to give up at any point and just think, oh, I'm too busy, I'm not going to do it. But having three of you working together means that if one of us is busy, the others can pick up the slack with a bit of organisational work with, with regards to whether it be... Um, dealing with the illustrator who who was in fact in the UK, um, so all the illustrations were done via email correspondence. Um, but also, there's a peer pressure to keep going. Um, and once you've thrown a little bit of money in it, you know what's a little bit more, what's a little bit more, and then before you know it, you've got a box of books. But it would still <laughs> seem to be an interesting venture for three people to decide upon. Was was there a driving, compelling force behind this or not? Just something fun to do and to have, have something to, ha- to hold in your hands and say, we made this, we like this, and we've, we, this is something that we think will make a difference out there. Mm. Yep. But you've self-published, yes, but yep. then you've had to take care of all the other facets, as you say, illustrations, mm-hmm. yep. digitally organised, yep. marketing. Marketing, yeah. What there, have you done there? There are so many facets to self-publishing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There might be a lot of people listening who are self-published, um, but... 
every step along the way we've come up against hurdles. Um, in terms of advertising, as you asked, you know, we're focusing on Instagram, using influencers. Shannon, one of my colleagues or co-conspirators, as I like to call him, he's um, taking days off and going to local primary schools hmm. all around Melbourne um, and doing library sessions. So he takes in little cardboard cutout glasses and the kids colour in glasses and listen to the story. And he asks the kids, oh, you know, who knows what this word means? Who knows what this word means? And you'd actually be very surprised. There's a lot of kids in the class who will put their hands up and they know what the words mean. So I think, you know, for all the academics and they say how we learn language, we don't give the children enough credit um, and they pick up things really quickly. Mm. And, well, how are sales going for that matter? Oh, well, we've actually invested in wheelbarrows because we don't know where to put all the cash. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. A toy wheelbarrow or yeah. a fully-fledged yeah. workman's wheelbarrow? Yeah. We're Which... minding the pile of money and shifts. But, okay. But did you approach a, a, an established publisher at all or did you just go straight down the... We, we didn't approach an established publisher. We kind of looked at the at the lay of the land and thought that, you know, we wanted to have total control over what we were producing. Um, so that's that's the way we went. Mm. Yep. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you're, you're sort of challenging the world or the digital age yep. in some ways makes yep. it easier to challenge a lot of the uh, conventional publishing. But I dare say, and can I use this phrase, uh, because given that we're... Um, looking at a children's book, there might be some younger people listening, but, mate, you're taking the piss out of the industry because <laughs> on the back there's normally quotes from authors that we know who have... Reviewed uh, the book. Reviewed yeah. the yep. book. But what revered, we revered Revered people. authors. Yes, yep. but what we We've have, chosen three revered people to in, review the book. Indeed, and, and what we have is a breakthrough in the industry. Marcus Vestralen, author. A spectacular innovation, whimsical, sesquipedalian, John Head, author. This team of the literary vanguard, Shannon Sands, author. But you're the actual author. That's right, we are. So you're taking the mickey in some ways out of the whole... Well, when we self-published the book, the only people who had access to the book were us. So we thought we've got to get some reviews on the back. Who better to review it than the authors themselves? But that also speaks to the fact that did you know of anybody in the industry who could have written on the back? Do you think? Or... We knew people who we could approach, but we thought that they may tell us that it's no good. So, <laughs> so, so why, why hang around? So why ask them? For, ask for critical. If thought? there are all these rules and we're intending to break them, then um, we should just do it ourselves. So that's what we've done. And in terms of the reaction within the primary schools, yep. what what has it been like? With the Ex kids? extremely positive, extremely positive, and and everyone we've sold it to, you know, we've we've got so many glowing reviews back. No one has said, oh, you know, my son or daughter didn't like it, or my niece or nephew didn't like it. Well, um, it, in some ways, it it goes to the fact that the story itself of magic glasses of finding a means to overcome embarrassment yep. is identifiable. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, there's a deeper meaning there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that's what you need to ground it. Yep. In, in some ways. But then, as you say, the illustrations uh, create the atmosphere. Yes. You can read from context that way and you can learn language from yep. the context. And so the rhyme mm -hmm. helps with that delivery. Helps maintain that engagement yeah. as well when so children are listening. They can learn. Now, before we finish, I, I do have one final question, which your mother would never forgive me <laughs> if I didn't ask. Go for it. Is this you finding your inner child, or are you perhaps preparing for a time when 
you'll be reading children's story in your own home. Oh, first one, then the other. First one, then the other. So I think your mum would appreciate me asking that question. So you'll have to have a discussion with her about that. So basically, I've been talking about a book entitled The Magic Glasses by one of the authors, Marcus Verstralen, and uh, John Head and Shannon Sands are the other two. You've actually got your own publishing house? Uh, we've used a printing company, you've but we've got our own publishing company. That's correct. Right, yeah. to, yep. to release them. Yep. And you've got um, a sequel coming out called The Peripatetic Centipede. Peripatetic, yep. So Wandering that... just didn't sound quite right. <laughs> well, it, it sort of goes together, Centipede and Peripatetic. It, yep. it sort of has legs, shall we say. Well, I want to uh, remind people that Melanie Cheng, very well-known writer in, in Melbourne, Benjamin Law from television and lots of things, and Bram Presser, who we've had on the program, they endorsed um, Joey Bue's book, Lucky Ticket. <laughs> well, Thanks very much. That takes us out for another week. It and does. And we'll see you all again next, next week. week.